we should be investing in an evidence-based way. But actually, it turns out when I you know, started to look into this, that most investment strategies which professionals recommend are actually based on guesswork, hunches. I mean, that's actually, that sounds like an exaggeration. It's absolutely not. Whereas we have evidence that there are some just simple things that investors should be doing. And if you do those simple things, you should get good returns in the long run. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I'm your host, Sean Maslick, and I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. This week, we talked to Robin Powell. Before we get into the episode, I want to welcome all new listeners. And for the returning listeners, welcome back. Before we dive into the episode, if you have been enjoying these podcasts, these conversations, I would appreciate it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. So today we speak to Robin Powell, an award-winning journalist, author, and investing expert, as we discuss the power of evidence-based investing. Robin has over 20 years in television journalism. He brings a wealth of knowledge as he is the founder of Ember Television, Regis Media, head of education for Rock Wealth, and the author of his insightful book, How to Fund the Life You Want. In this episode, Robin does a fascinating job at sharing why evidence-based investing is crucial for achieving our long-term success, or as his book suggests, how we can fund the life we want. I really appreciated the perspective Robin brought to this conversation as it seemed to center around this idea of how can we fund the life we want? Not necessarily how can we create the most money, but rather fund the life we want. I appreciate this perspective that Robin brought. During the conversation, you'll hear the depth of knowledge that Robin has around emotional decision-making in the realm of investing. As such, his response would be to focus on the evidence-based research that we have gathered over the years that shows us that there is a simpler way to invest than trying to beat the markets. I'm sure you'll also enjoy the part of the conversation where Robin touches on important aspects such as defining what is enough, what does enough mean, and what does it mean in Robin's life as he aligns his financial goals with his core values. This was an enjoyable conversation. I highly recommend his book, How to Fund the Life You Want. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Robin Powell. Robin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
I'm excited to have you on today. We we're just chatting a little bit about your book and I really found this book to be insightful, but very practical. So I'm excited to dive into, into the book so our readers are, sorry, our listeners can understand all the wisdom you have in this book. However, I thought we would start with going back to 2010, when I've heard you mention that 2010 was a significant investing wake-up call for you in your own personal journey. Could you share why this moment was so significant for you? Yeah, well, I think like quite a few people, and I think men as well, can be particularly kind of overconfident when it comes to, to investing. And, and a lot of the research bears that out. I thought I was pretty good at it, but it turns out that I actually knew very little about how to invest properly. And it really came about when I left my job in mainstream television. I set up a, a production company in Birmingham, England, which is where, where I'm based. Literally, one of our first clients was a financial planning firm which used index funds. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I've heard about those, but I hear they're, they're not particularly great. They only use average returns and, and so on. I looked more into it and read more about it. And we decided to make a documentary about passive investing. I don't particularly like using that phrase anymore. I prefer now to call it evidence-based investing. But anyway, cut a long story short, went to America, interviewed some really key people over there, Nobel Prize winners, Jack Bogle, who you will know of, Sean, and, and a lot of your listeners as well, the famous uh, index fund pioneer, also the head guy at Dimensional Fund Advisors, which is another very good evidence-based fund provider. And I'll be honest, I was blown away with how much evidence there is about how to invest properly. And yet, not only do most people not invest the way they should be doing, they're to be encouraged to invest in just the wrong way by people, the very people who should be telling them how to invest. So that just became very, something which, which made me very curious. And so literally I've been on this journey 12, 13 years now, trying to find out why that is, why people get such bad advice and to help steer them in the right direction instead. Thank you for that. So you talk about evidence-based and I think, you know, that that's actually how I found you is through evidence-based investing. For, for the listeners who might not be so familiar with evidence-based investing, can you speak to the, the academic side of it and that, that key word, evidence-based? Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with this whole idea of evidence-based medicine. And, mm -hmm. and evidence-based medicine, you'd think that actually <laughs> the medical profession would have been acting in an evidence-based way for centuries. But you know, if you actually read about it, it's unbelievable that, uh, you know, up until, you know, earlier even, well, as I say, this century, I mean, I, I, now, of course, we're now in the 21st, in the, the, the century that I was, that I, I've lived most of my life in the 20th, you know, a lot of the medical profession w was really just making mistakes. And a, a lot of medical treatment was just designed to kind of correct the mistakes that other doctors had, had made, if you like, simply because it wasn't a lot of it wasn't actually based on evidence. And then, of course, you had the development of clinical trials and so on. And this made a huge difference. And we had research at, you know, universities, medical schools all around the world. And there was this process of academic peer review. And as a result, you know, there have been huge advances in medical treatment. And, you know, we live much longer. 
as a result, or we have much better chances of surviving major diseases, illnesses, and so on. We still haven't really reached that point properly with investing. You know, we should be investing in an evidence-based way, but actually it turns out when I, you know, started to look into this, that most investment strategies which professionals recommend are actually based on guesswork, hunches. I mean, that's actually, that sounds like an exaggeration. It's absolutely not. Whereas we have evidence that there are some just simple things that investors should be doing. And if you do those simple things, you should get good returns in the long run. And those messages, well, they just haven't been getting out. I mean, things are getting better. You know, in Canada, like the UK, is, is still quite a long way behind the, the, the US in this. Thankfully, standards of investor education, financial literacy are improving gradually, and we are moving more towards a, an evidence-based way of investing. It's so fascinating as you break that down from the medical perspective and how the advances have occurred since operating from an evidence-based, but yet something so important is our financial futures, our financial savings. We're using a, a word that you wrote in the book was folk wisdom, or how you just said here, hunches. And what has your observation been? Why is this persisting? We have this evidence. We know it works, this simple way. But yet, we're for, as I mean, as a journalist, you, you must see it all the time, or you saw it all the time, that everyone's fighting for our attention of invest this way, using fear, playing on the emotions. Why do you think this continues to persist despite, and I think you said something really important here, despite most investment strategies aren't mm. superior and the people telling us know this? Well, look, may, maybe we should just sort of pedal back a little bit and just, just explain you know, briefly what evidence-based investing is and what the rules of it are. I mean, it, it's really quite straightforward that you should keep your costs low because actually how much you pay to invest makes a massive, massive difference, particularly with the effects of compounding over many years of investing. You should diversify broadly. You know, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. You should in invest across different asset classes, different geographies, different sectors, and so on. And you should just keep your trading to an absolute minimum. You should, you know, try and do pretty much nothing. There's something called rebalancing, which I'm sure you explained to your to your clients is a is an important way of of really just kind of spring cleaning your portfolio every every year or maybe twice a year or, or or whatever or or maybe just every few years. That's important to do. But other than that, really investors shouldn't be doing very much at all. So those three things keep cost low, diversify, don't do anything. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how you should invest. But we have an industry here which is paid to, well, first of all, make investing expensive because that's the way that it earns its fees. Instead of diversifying, oh, no, that's too simple. They want to complicate it. You know, you pay them for complexity, basically. They, they, they like to give this impression that investing is far more complicated than it is. And, oh, no, you can't just invest in a, in a, in a global equity index fund. You've got to you know, have 30% in Japan, you've got 20% in you know, Australia or, you know, what, what, whatever it is, or, or you shouldn't be investing in these types of bonds at the moment. But really the, the sensible, the rational, 
rational approach is to, is to diversify. And that third golden rule I told you, don't do anything. Well, you know, if we don't do anything, the, the stockbrokers don't get paid, you know, and they can't sell us different funds and different products all the time. So it's not in their interest, basically. So that, that's one main reason why we do it. The second thing is that we're all human. You know, we think we can do better than an index fund. But if you actually look at the, the data, and there's a company called S&P Dow Jones Indices, which has produced data for countries all around the world, including Canada, and they consistently show that the vast majority of active managers, you know, don't perform the, the, the index over the, over the long term. So if these are pr- the very, very best professionals with the very, very best information, the very best resources at their disposal, if they can't do it, do you really think you in your, you know, back bedroom in Edmonton or whatever, that you can actually outperform the global stock market? It's just not going to happen. But we like to think we're better than we are. Like I said at the start of this conversation, I, I thought I knew about investing. It turns out I yeah, actually <laughs> very, or knew very little. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's basically why we don't invest in an evidence-based way. Yeah, you know, we have this industry that is reliant on the way it has been. So, of course, it's, it's trying to persist this way that makes the money. And you know what's interesting is that we often hear, like I, I've met several people who've heard the evidence side of why, I mean, hesitate to use the word passive investing, but for the sake, why they, oh, uh, let's go back to your evidence base, why the evidence yeah. base is the way to go. But yet, we tell ourselves stories, and this is what I find so fascinating about humans, is that despite the evidence is there, we still are going to tell ourselves stories after stories that, oh, this time it's a little different, or right now with the downturn, we need to have these active managers in place. And yet, if, if we look back to your example with the medical industry, this day and age, we're not questioning their evidence base, but holy smokes, do we continue to question it on the, the money side? It's just fascinating the way humans perceive information. You're absolutely right. Storytelling is absolutely critical, you know, from, you know, the cavemen and women, you know, that's how we as humans communicated with each other with stories, you know, and in France and other countries, you can see where people communicated stories with, with pictures. You started with pictures, then obviously they started writing words and then books. Like stories is how we try to make sense of a complicated and sometimes quite scary world. And the fund industry knows this. And so the industry will put out all these stories, you know, so, for example, the world is a very uncertain, it seems a particularly uncertain place at the moment. And to be honest, the world is always, there'll always be uncertainty, but the, the active fund industry really likes to make a meal of this so that we feel all scared about it and think that because it's so uncertain, we need to pay some very clever people lots of money to manage our money for us. That's essentially how it works. I, I was at a behavioral finance conference in London earlier this week, and behavioral finance is a really, really fascinating subject. And it's grown hugely over the last 20 years or so. And it explains so much about the stock markets and investment returns. So much of you know, the poor returns that investors receive can be put down to just 
bad behavior, ill discipline, listening to stories, getting worried about stories in the newspaper, listening to what I would call noise, which sounds like it should be important, should be significant, but actually in the great scheme of things isn't. So if you can manage your behavior as an investor, you know, that you will go a long, long way to achieving better outcomes. Yeah, I guess the fascinating part when you bring up behavior finance and just how we approach this more evidence-based approach is that usually when we want to do something or the way we evolved, if we had to get work done, we go, we went out, we did work, we did manual work, we could physically see ourselves doing something. And I think it's so counterintuitive that the best way to do this is just set it up and leave it. It goes against kind of our hardwiring way of being. But yet, as we know from so many researches, the, the fiddling around is where all the, well, not all, Absolutely. but many of the issues come into play. Absolutely. As human beings, we have an action bias. We want to do something. And again, I mentioned the gender thing earlier. Men are particularly prone to this. You see it in relationships or th- things that happen in in life all that, you know, in couples or I mean, I'm just maybe, yeah, I'm just thinking about my own wife and I, you know, if there's a problem, she often just wants to talk about it, you know, and for me to kind of sympathize with the way she's feeling and so on. And then maybe after a couple of hours, she's actually feeling much better about it. I, on the other hand, want to say, right, this is a problem that we're going to fix. I know what we'll do. We'll do A, B and C, and then everything will be fine. And usually with investing, you know, that male approach is exactly the wrong approach. So for example, the market's full, you panic, you sell funds, you read something in the, in the local paper or whatever about what you should be doing, and you end up regretting it for years after. It was actually a really fascinating study, Sean, by Morningstar, which they've just done, which showed the performance of active fund managers in America over the last 10 years. And they asked the theoretical question, what would have happened if all those active managers, instead of working hard, making these you know billions of dollars worth of trades over the last 10 years, what if they'd all just gone on holiday for 10 years and sat on a beach? And the fascinating conclusion of that research was that their returns would have been hugely better if they'd just simply gone on holiday. So, so in other words, it was the fact that they were doing stuff that actually made their performance so bad. Yeah, I mean, you laugh, and it is funny in a way, but it's also... It's also quite sad because these are, these are people's retirement savings that these people are speculating with. It's, yeah, it's bonkers. You know, I appreciate just how much a dedication you have to solving this issue that, to use your word there, it's bonkers because it really is. I mean, that scenario you just laid out, I was chuckling just because of how insane it is, but yet it persists. However, people like yourselves who are dedicating their careers to rectifying this issue, let's switch over to your book. So your book, from what I gathered and have heard you talk about, caters towards the average person who wants to fund this life they desire. 
And you say how you recognize there's so many different books. And I heard you speaking about this is how are you going to approach this subject? And I heard you talk about how you didn't want to create a book that oversimplifies money or leaves readers stranded with theoretical principles, which I know I've had those experiences reading other books. So could you share how your book strikes a balance of providing accessible information for the average person while still addressing the complexities that do exist with our money lives? So the book is called How to Fund the Life You Want, and it was co-authored by me and someone I, I've honestly known for 40 odd years, Jonathan Hollow. We were kids together, went, went our separate ways. And, and actually, neither of us was particularly interested in finance when we first knew each other. But we both kind of stumbled upon this kind of area. He worked for an organization in the UK called the Money and Pensions Service. And, you know, as I explained earlier, I, I got into financial journalism as a result of making that, that documentary in 2010. And we just decided, look, there are loads and loads of books about investing, but there are, there are none that are evidence-based. And this is quite important for us that, that, that we're, we're UK focused. Now, you know, there is a lot in this book, Canadian investors, investors anywhere really will, will, will benefit from, but a lot of the complexity, complexities around financial planning and retirement planning actually involve the tax system in your part of the world. So wherever you are. So different countries have different tax incentives for investing, different limits on how much you're allowed to invest and, and so on. So, so we, we wanted to explain that element. And, and actually that can be quite complicated, as I'm sure it is in Canada. And the, the other thing is we also wanted to put investing in its proper place because, you know, you don't just invest to accumulate money. Accumulate money is just a means to an end. The, the end is to live the life you want to live. We're all on earth for a relatively short time. You know, how do you earn enough? And that's just such an important word, enough working out how much you actually need to do what you want. And obviously what you want, what I want, what your listeners want is all, is all different. Working out what you really want is critically important. And that's actually more important than investing. And, and that's another really key reason why we wrote the book. This word enough we hear about it more and more lately, which I think is good. The narrative is, is starting to shift towards what is enough. As you mentioned, it's all different for us. But if you had a reader who wrote to you and said, Robin, I like this idea of enough. How does one go about understanding enoughness? Well, that, that's, a really, that's a really difficult one to answer. And I actually think a financial planner play, I'm sure you'd agree, agree with me, Sean, uh, we can play a really critical part in that. People think financial planning is all about telling the, the client which funds to invest their money in. And it's, that's, it's not about that at all. You know, investment management obviously is part of it, but a much bigger part is actually working out who you are, what your values are, what you really want from your life. And it's amazing how many of us just go through life 
decades, decades of our lives without really asking these really important questions. And let's face it, you know, it's quite a horrifying thought coming to the end of your life and it's you meeting the person you really wanted to be, you know, that must be really, really difficult. You, you don't want to have any regrets. So work out now what your values are, who you want to spend your life with, what you want to spend your time on. Is it doing yet more work? Is it earning yet more money? Or is it spending more time with your spouse, with your children, your grandchildren? Is it traveling? Is it reading? Is it learning? Is it helping people? Yeah, you've got to work it out. Jonathan actually decided that he wanted to study ancient history. <laughs> that was his thing, you know. About the last thing that I would actually, I'm sure it's a very interesting subject, of course, but Roman Britain, and he actually presented a paper about it the other day, which sounded absolutely fascinating, but each to his own, that's what he wanted to do. And of course, you know, you need to have money behind you to just take time off and do a master's degree in, you know, Roman Britain studies or whatever. So yeah, that's what Jonathan decided to do. But it's, it's, it's different for everyone. This idea of it's different for everyone, I think is so important. And when you talk about the financial planners can help be that guide. I think like for me as a financial planner, it's critical that we as a financial planning profession read books like yours and do our own work. So we have our own definition of what enough is. So there, we're not just telling, we've actually, we've actually, I know you talk about a mountain in your, in your book, but we, we've climbed the mountain or parts of the mountain so that we can ask the right questions. Because what, what I do see, and I'm sure you've seen this before, is we run the risk of, we have the assumed power when they come into our office that we know everything. But if all we're focusing on is then that investment part, then, you know, we could be leading them up the wrong mountain and spend a lifetime climbing your mountain to realize it's the wrong mountain is something that we want to avoid. Absolutely. Yeah. So I imagine writing a book, it requires a lot of engagement thinking, especially having a co-author. And it's so fascinating that you've been friends for 40 years. But with decades of experience for yourself, Jonathan, as well, you both must have had a wealth of knowledge coming to co-create this book. You start the book off with a title called Your Money or Your Life. Could you walk us through the process of why did you pick out of all the different topics you could talk about? How did you guys decide that this was going to be the opening chapter of your book? Well, I, I, I think this, this really speaks to what, what I, I, you know, my, my, my last answer, I suppose, really, that, that actually... Mm -hmm. It was part of this realization that actually money, money is just money. It's it's not it's not the be all and end all. It's not the end. It's it's the means. It's the means to an end. And actually, what really matters is 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 your life. And you know, it's <laughs> I know it's a bit of a, a time worn phrase, but you know, you can't take it with you. You know, there's no point in dying, you know, lonely and unhappy with lots and lots of money in the bank. You know, it might be better to have no money in the bank, actually to reach the end of your life and thinking, wow, I feel really fulfilled. Yeah. So, so that's why, you know, we, we wanted to challenge people right at the start to, to think, you know, what is it that you really want? Because as I say, people should ask these questions, but we're so busy with our lives and 
you know, worrying about the everyday and getting our work done and the shopping done and the house cleaned and everything else that for one reason or another, we just do not sit down with ourselves and think about it or we'll sit down with our partner and talk mm. about it. And we really should. You know, what's so fascinating about that is that's our life, like you just alluded to, but yet we will sit down and read these headlines about investing or we will try to, at times we will, try to understand what markets to go into, which markets not to go, to engage with, as you said, the noise. But yet, I find it so fascinating that we have a, I wouldn't say all the time, this is a universal statement, but at times we have harder time to sit down with ourselves and we kind of use the noise to distract ourselves from answering these super important questions that you you speak about. I don't know if you've come across this this experience throughout your your career, but I just find it so fascinating. One of the most, well, possibly the most inspiring person I, I interviewed for, for that documentary I told you about, Jack Bogle. He said, the stock market is a giant distraction from the serious business of investing. And it is. We just focus too much on, you know, where markets are at the moment and where people think they're going to be in a few months' time or whatever. Nobody knows where markets are going to be in a few months' time, certainly not a few days' time or weeks' time. Looking back at, at market history, we have a, a rough idea that if you invest for the long term, if you diversify, then you're going to do pretty well. That's what we do know. And so let's just focus on what we do know, what is it in our control, if you like, and whatever isn't in our control, well, let's just not worry about it. And if you look at the last century, for example, two world wars, you know, the threat of a, of a nuclear Armageddon, we had, you know, a major crash and a huge worldwide recession in the 1930s. And then, of course, towards the end of the century, we had the rise of global terrorism and so on. And yet, you know, human enterprise is so resilient that we bounce back from atomic bombs and, and so on, wars. And, and actually, the countries that were hardest hit in the, in the Second World War actually wiped the floor with those of mm. us who, you know, supposedly won. You know, the, the spirit of human enterprise and resilience triumphs. It's, it's amazing what humans can achieve when they put their minds to it, you know, global capitalism will, in the long term, provide a good return. So let's just try not to stress about it. Let's just get in there. Let's take our slice of it, if you like, and just switch off the market news and just concentrate on enjoying our lives a bit more. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> I like how you bring in this idea of control and it, it, it sounds to me this cultivating the sense of like agency where, hey, wait a second, when I focus on these things that I can control, I would assume I ruminate less, I worry a little less. And to your point now, just focus on living our lives. Are you familiar with a guy called Carl Richards? Yep. He, he's the sketch oh, yeah. guy from the New York Times. He was on the podcast. Oh, really? He, he's got a really interesting Venn diagram. I'm trying to cast, cast my mind back to maths classes at school. Uh, Venn diagram. And on the one side, you've got things you can control 
and things that actually matter. Can I do anything about it? Does it actually matter? And it's only that segment in the middle where those two circles overlap, if you like. That's the only thing we should worry about or not, or not worry about. We should do something about. You know, if we can do something about it and it's important. Let's do it. But just forget everything else. I mean, the classic case would be, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, fees. You know, that's something you can control. And it's very important, very, very important. You know, these fees that people pay to invest, you know, sound really small, 1% or half a percent or whatever. Every point, every base, what we call a basis point of those, that makes a difference in the long term, particularly, you know, with the effects of compounding. So that's the example of and a classic for something that is within our control and is important. So let's do it. But let's not stress about the rest. Robin, when you started talking about the fees, you started leaning more into the camera and I could hear your voice getting even more, having more conviction in it. Well, as I said, they're, they're very important. And it's also, you were talking about counterintuitive. You know, it's, it's counterintuitive that actually you shouldn't do anything. You get better results when you do nothing. And, and that's definitely true of investing. Of course, it's not true of other things in life. You know, you wouldn't get on in your career if you, you know, you did, do, you did nothing. But actually investing is one sphere of life where actually it does pay to do nothing. And another example of, you know, a counterintuitive concept that investors have got to get their heads around is around cost. If you think about it, every other thing we go out and buy, product, service, whether you buy a car or a holiday, Generally speaking, the more you pay for something, the better the result will be. So if you pay for a Lamborghini, you're going to get more than, you know, a Hyundai or a Toyota or whatever, whatever it is. If you spend $10,000 on a holiday, you know, you're going to get a nicer holiday experience than a holiday to the same destination for $2,000 or whatever it is. Actually, with investing, it works completely, and I mean completely, the other way around. It's not necessarily the case. The very cheapest option is always the best. But generally speaking, the less you pay to invest, the higher your net returns will be when you come to retire. So that's a really kind of counterintuitive idea that, that people have got to get their heads around. And the entire active industry right now is being like, no. <laughs> but I was having a conversation with someone one time and they were frustrated by their perceived ability to pick certain investments and how much it failed. And a bit of humor because they laughed that their automatic savings that they've been doing for like 20 years in this account with really was a small amount going in had more money after this experience of trying to pick stocks. And it wasn't even like there was no interest rate. It was just a basic savings account. And I, I know that's a one off, but just this point that we can try so hard, do so many things. And when we get it wrong, putting your money into a savings account in this person's case was, was more lucrative, if you want to use that word. Well, well, look, you absolutely shouldn't beat yourself up for mistakes, investment mistakes that you've made in the past. Because to be honest, 
I've made horrendous mistakes when I thought I knew what I was doing. And, and you kind of kid yourself that actually they weren't too serious. But when you actually look at what you could have earned, if you just simply put it in a, in a low cost index fund, then you really did do spectacularly badly. And, and that's not just me, that, and, and that client of yours you mentioned, but it's almost everyone who tries. You know, this is what Charlie Ellis, you know, the famous author, investment consultant called the loser's game. It's an active management trying to pick stocks that will outperform the market, trying to time the market, get in when prices are low and sell when prices are high. First of all, it's a zero-sum game. Someone has to win and someone has to lose. But when you factor in all the costs involved, it's, it's a loser's game. In aggregate, you are, on average, going to lose. And the longer the time frame, remember, most of us invest nowadays for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years even, you know, the longer the time frame, the more likely you are to lose relative to investing in, in low-cost index funds. So, yeah, it, it just, just really doesn't make sense. Something I really, really liked about your book, your work, you do quite a few things right now. But the, the theme that I see is really around this education piece in the financial industry space. And going through your book, not only did I feel like you're focused on education and information, but also the implementation of that information. And I think that's what I really saw that was different from your book than other books is sometimes we get books that just flood us with this information and it's almost information overload. And you talk about cognitive bias. And one of them is if we have too much information, we just don't do anything. Where I feel like you really invite the, the reader to come on this journey of implementing, of thinking, of talking about the concepts in your book, whether it's through the workbook style, even giving yours and Jonathan's experience, experiential stories. So my question is, can you speak on or speak to the importance of implementation? And was this intentional to create a book that was practical that people can actually implement, kind of going from knowing to doing? Mm. Look, getting your financial house in order and getting on track for retirement is exactly like getting fit or losing weight. We all know what we should be doing. We all know we should be getting on with it. But for various reasons, we put it off and we start and then we stop again. And then the wheels completely come off and we completely lose, you know, heart. And then eventually a few years later, we think, oh, actually, we better start doing it again. And the same cycle and so on recurs. We really wanted to get people to say, look, you know, you're one life, one shot at it. Get on and work out what you want and get a financial plan. I mean, that's, that's the most important thing people need is a financial plan. Now, that can just be one side of, of A4. You know, it can just be a little index card, to be honest, with, you know, 50 words on it, or if that, just setting out what, what your priorities are, what the plan is. But you need to have a plan. And it's not just a plan to say you want to get the best possible returns you possibly can. That's not a plan. You know, what do you want to do with your life? When do you want to retire? Roughly, what do you want to do when you retire? What are your spending priorities? 
you like to leave money for for your you know children or grandchildren or do you, do you want to give money to charity or do you want to spend money retraining for another career or whatever it is you you need to have a plan and another really critical thing and this is actually Jonathan's idea right and it, I must have was quite skeptical about it at first that people would would actually find this useful but it's actually the most probably the most talked about aspect of this book is we actually have a workbook you know you can download the workbook it actually just sets it all out tells you what to do you just work through it and yeah we've had a really really good response about that yeah i think that workbook is such a great idea it nudges people into action and i can imagine as we're working through this workbook we start to get that that mindset shift of focusing on the things i can control which then just snowballs and then eventually you've got this completed workbook and you've worked through some really important questions. So I think it's fantastic. I mean, don't, don't underestimate the power of inertia. You know, inertia is a really, really dangerous thing in, in investing. The worst kind of inertia is not investing in the first place at all, because that is the worst thing you can do. As I'm sure you know, Sean, you know, for just simple mathematical reasons, the earlier you start, the better. And the, the benefits of starting just a few years earlier than average, say, to invest makes a massive difference. You know, for every, I can't remember what the figures are off the top of my head, but for every, you know, dollar you put in today, you know, in 30 years time, you might have to put in $10 or something to get the same benefit. You know, it really does pay to get started. Um, if you're thinking about putting more into your pension, you know, and I mean, I know we've got this cost of living crisis around the world at the moment, but if you can do it now, because, you know, the, the, the more you put in the earlier, the better, and the more you'll be grateful for it later. Yeah. And inertia as well. I mean, people might read my blog, The Evidence-Based Investor, and read how rubbish the returns are from active funds and be thinking, I really ought to speak to my advisor about the active fund portfolio recommended me. But for one reason or another, never get around to it. Years and years go by and you are tens of thousands of dollars or whatever worse off. Get on with it. Do it. Sort it out. I can imagine writing a book. I've never written a book, but it takes a lot of, of you to put all of these thoughts into paper. This question is, I guess, linking back to 2010. You've talked about 2010 a couple of times with this documentary. It seems to me that that serves as kind of an inflection point on your journey where you you had a shift in thinking, having conversations with Jack Bogle and others allowed you to have this shift in thinking. Coming to this book now, another, maybe perhaps or perhaps not, inflection point in your journey, as you reflect back on the, writing this book, what shifts, if anything at all, occurred to you after you wrote the book, published it, and it's been out with your readers as they read it. Have you had any new perspective changes or anything to that degree? This is the beauty of evidence-based investing that, you know, the best way to invest 50 years ago is the best way to invest today. And I don't know, I don't want to make, I don't generally don't like making predictions about the future as part of an invest, evidence-based investment makeup, but it's probably would be the case in, in 50 years time that it will still be the best way to, to, to invest. And actually things don't change greatly. What do change are tax rules. 
I mentioned earlier that that understanding your tax rules as they apply to pensions and investing in your country is actually really important. And would you believe it, just a few weeks after we wrote the book, the Chancellor of the Exchequer here in the UK made a very significant <laughs> change to what's called the lifetime the lifetime allowance. He abolished the blooming thing, which is most annoying. But anyway, so when we, if we come to update the book, then that will obviously need, need, need changing. But very little changes. You know, lots of new products come out all the time. Marketing ideas come out every week. I, you know, ideas, things to invest in come out every, every day, you know, on the internet. But actually the rules of sense of investing don't really change. So, so no, I haven't really changed my mind about very much since, since writing the book. Yeah. Although I, having said that, I think very carefully before writing another book, because it's hard work, very hard work. Uh, this is my own curiosity percolating now. So 2010, you have this realization that evidence-based investing is superior. It's backed by research. It now opens up more time, more cognitive effort to think of other things. Do you think during that 2010 to now writing this book, it opened up the pathways for you to think more about this idea of enough, how you open up the chapter, money or your life, did it allow you to then stop thinking so much about the nuance of investing and think about what, what journey, what path you're sailing towards? You know, I think you've raised a really valid point. Actually, well, one of the best things about evidence-based investing is it is so liberating. You know, before, before 2010, you know, I would read the money sections of the, the national newspapers here in the UK, you know, the Sunday Times, Mail on Sunday and so on. And I'd be looking for all the ideas and so on. And I'd spend at least an hour, you know, reading them. And it's complete, complete waste of time. I would spend, you know, hours looking at fund performance, comparing the performance of different funds looking at things which had done well and possibly switching then to something else or selling out of something which hadn't done well. And it was, it was stressful and it was time consuming and it was a waste of time and effort. The beauty of evidence-based investing is you say, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to the stock market. I don't know which funds and stocks and countries are going to do well in 2023, 24 or whatever. But I do know that capitalism is going to survive, you know, short of a serious meteor strike or nuclear war. But even then, even then, humans, as I say, are remarkably adaptable and resilient. It's great just being, in financial terms, completely agnostic. You just don't stress. Well, I find anyway, I, I just don't stress in the same way that tip investors do and, and can really recommend it to your to your listeners <laughs> that that is a great recommendation stress less and in, focus on things that you can bring joy to your life so absolutely robin i see the time here 20 minutes flew by in two minutes i, I looked up and it was we had 20 minutes but now we have a minute so thank you so much for joining me for listeners who are intrigued with your thinking your way of approaching evidence-based investing where would you point them to your online work. 
so I have a blog called The Evidence-Based Investor, evidenceinvestor.com. Yeah, that's the best place to look. We have a, a YouTube channel as well, The Evidence-Based Investor YouTube channel. I'm on Twitter, t- Robin J. Powell. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, be good to hear from you. Join the conversation. You know, if there's any of the content that sparks an interest or maybe, maybe you disagree with, that's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you. Great. We'll put those in the show notes. And yeah, I, I enjoy your videos and your blog. It's very well done. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining this week. If you are still listening, perhaps that means you enjoyed the episode. If that's the case, I would love it if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Those reviews definitely do help. As I said at the top of the episode, I highly recommend Robin's book, How to Fund the Life You Want. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next week. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.